want to thank everybody for joining us tonight for the uh, fireside chat with Lyndon LaRouche for Thursday, January 13th. We started a couple minutes late because we're having a technical problem that seems to have been resolved. And um, we're meeting at a very, very dangerous moment. Um, uh, It's a moment in which we were caused to ask the question uh, or to pose the question to stop your impending incineration in a thermonuclear war. Are you prepared to crush the city of London and Wall Street? Now, what is this? What this refers to is that in the last week, there have been many different statements made by American representatives of the State Department uh, who have taken it upon themselves to mortgage the future of not merely the United States, but the transatlantic world on a adventure to attempt to uh, bludgeon uh, Russia and China into a certain kind of imperial military ambition. Now, in part, this may be certain people, if they're, as they say, talking out of their ass. But the problem involved is that there is nothing at the moment, at least in the public, coming from the presidency of the United States that is militating against that impression. Um, This has to do, as people may or may not know, and we'll talk about this in some detail a little later, uh, with respect to the confrontation (coughs) between Russia and NATO that shaped around or or seems to be shaped around Ukraine. Uh, But then there's also Kazakhstan, where there was just an attempt to launch a kind of Islamic State coup. Uh, and and uh, that didn't work. It was prevented. It didn't occur. Um, and uh, and uh, that was an operation by what's called Project Democracy or the Project Democracy Forces. Uh, today, it has been stated that the approval ratings of Biden at are, are at an all-time low, 33%. And various persons are asking among the even less informed uh, media why this is the case. And so some people have said, is it because of his performance around COVID? Is it because of what he's trying to do around the filibuster and the whole voting rights question? Is it because of the bellicose statements that seem to be being made by the State Department around provoking war? Is it this and is it that? The reason, and this is not about the popularity question, but the reason that Biden is having the problem is that there are tasks of the American presidency which are world historic. And that person that occupies that office is required to respond to those tasks at the level that history demands. Uh, If you are caught below the level of events, as a friend of ours used to say, the late uh, deceased Fred Wills, former foreign minister and economics minister of the nation of Guyana, a person 
that was a collaborator with Lyndon LaRouche for many years, from about 1976 until 1992 when he passed away. If you're caught below the level of event, of history, he meant, uh, of current history, then you pay for it, and your nation pays for it, and under certain circumstances, humanity pays for it. Uh, it's, that's not only, however, the duty of an American president. And in a moment, when Diane discusses uh, her uh, observations, her sort of reflections on uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., uh, you can, uh, you'll be able to see what I mean by the idea that each citizen of a republic, such as the United States, is required to take responsibility for the entire republic. That, that's a pre-existent requirement, which is uh, a function of the Constitution, and particularly its preamble. The fact that in these days this is no longer presumed to be the case doesn't change the fact that it is the case. Uh, the United States is a revolutionary government. It's a revolutionary governmental system. It was born out of, a, of an, of, of an Amer- American revolution and forged from that. And it was forged from that in revolutionary documents, one of them being the Declaration of Independence of 1776, the other being the Constitution of 1789 uh, and its preamble, as written by, ben, uh, by a, Alexander Hamilton's best friend, closest friend, Governor Morris of uh, New York. And the first president of the United States, uh, George Washington, and his secretary of treasury, Alexander Hamilton, were both veterans of that revolution. Uh, It's always peculiar to me that people consider Fidel Castro and Che Guevara to be revolutionists, but they never look at George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and in and, and, and a far more successful revolution that they made, which established not merely uh, a, a new nation, but it established for the first time in history uh, the, 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 a, 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 a context for the implementation of the science of physical economy first advanced by Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz in 1672. It's only the actual science of physical economy was only about 100 years old at the point that the United States itself, uh, as a nation, uh, began to practice it. Obviously, individuals or individual elements of the colonies and Benjamin Franklin's Pennsylvania, for example, had pioneered elements of this. And the Massachusetts Commonwealth had also pioneered elements of what became the American system. But the first time it appeared on Earth as a fully self-conscious system of self-government, including its economic aspects, was in the form as codified by the presidency of George Washington and as made clear in the documents of Alexander Hamilton. We're on the verge of war with Russia, potential war. Uh, That may be avoided, but at the present time, only a direct intervention through the presidencies of Russia and the United States 
and China would uh, be the means by which that could be done. And that presidential system happens to be where we have our greatest leverage and experience. That's not because of somebody we know in the presidency or in the presidential uh, bailiwick. It's because of the way in which Lyndon LaRouche shaped this organization over the many years that he ran it and the presidency that he commanded. Now, I want to say some things here about the nature of war in the American context by reflecting upon uh, one of our members who passed away this week. Uh, His name was Bill Jenkins, um, and he uh, was located in the Leesburg section of our organization. He came from New York City, uh, particularly lived up in the area of the Bronx. His father uh, was a minister uh, in Harlem uh, for many decades, and uh, uh, Bill was very affected by him. He joined um, as a volunteer the uh, American military at the age of 19, uh, and uh, this was about 1960, 61, thereabouts. Uh, he he uh, distinguished himself uh, in the eyes of certain of his trainers uh, who decided that he uh, had the skills that would make him uh, a member of a special or elite team. He didn't know what that team was going to be deployed to do. Well, that team was employed as a secret team. It's what became known later popularly as the shadow people, the people that never existed in the wars we never fought. Those wars were in Laos and in Cambodia. And in the context of that, those special missions, Bill was required to do things which were unspeakable. And he did them in the service of his country. These were things that were done with no identification, no dog tags. They were things that required jumping out of a helicopter at 20 feet in the air and dropping and rolling with a team of another approximately four people for the purpose of, of, of eliminating whole villages in a period of a few minutes and of eliminating every, any trace of yourself so that you can get, get picked up again. Wars we didn't fight, you see, so that when he was discharged, there was no record of his service. This is not an unfamiliar story to some people, including some of the people who are on the phone call right now. And apart from the fact that this sort of so-called warfare, something that he had no inkling that he was supposed to be doing, but he believed he was doing it to fight communism. That's what he was told. These are governments that we've got to do something about because they're godless communists and they're totalitarian and they're dictatorships and we must defeat them. And then you find yourself involved in all sorts of activities which you must find a way to honorably, honorably, let's say, change. And he did that. And in doing that, 
what happens is when you're discharged and you look at your service record and it says that you were in Germany the entire time, you realize that you don't exist or what you did is seen as you didn't exist. When we talk about extraordinary rendition, when we talk about drone warfare, when we talk about all these things that we have had American military personnel doing, now I want you to conceive of what these people from the State Department, with their words to Vladimir Putin and others about human rights, what they really represent and how they're really seen by many of the people in the American military that would cause you to do those things. Bill's father was a minister, as I say, and, and he was himself particularly religious. Afterwards, he was involved after his service and so on in some organizations. He met our organization in 1981, going to some classes up at uh, Bronx Community College by one of our members, Fernando uh, Oliver. And uh, he liked what he heard. They thought it was very exciting. He worked up there. He became an important contributor. He moved into our Leesburg operation, worked there for many, many years, decades, uh, doing all sorts of things, working in the field, uh, working on our press staff, uh, working in our printing operation, working in our bookstore, uh, doing anything that was needed. Um, and he was a personal friend of mine during uh, the first Gulf War, he went through a crisis at the time that the bombing occurred, kind of a flashback situation. Some people know about these things. And we talked. And one of the things that made Bill or helped Bill stay sane was his knowledge of the work that we were doing with several of the people from the civil rights movement, uh, this being Amelia Boynton Robinson and uh, people like the Reverend James Bevel and uh, others, uh, because he was highly competent and capable in the field of violence. But he also understood that there was a higher idea, which he had gotten from our organization, from Linda LaRouche in particular. Uh, and his true service to his country, which had been betrayed in the 1960s, was found in his adherence to the concept of the presidency that Lyndon LaRouche represented to him in the 1980s and the 90s and subsequently. So, so this is said by way of trying to give people a way of thinking about why each American is responsible tonight uh, to determine the answer to that question and to determine what to do about how to answer that question, which is, again, if you are faced with your own impending incineration and that of your nation in a thermonuclear war, are you prepared to crush the city of London and Wall Street? And how does one do that? How do you use nonviolent direct action to do that? How do you use ideas to do that? And by what means do you come up with the conceptions that allow you to supersede, to transcend the paradoxical hell of uh, contradiction that you seem to be caught in or your nation seems to be caught in. This, this of course, is what Helga Zeppelin-Russe has been talking about around the Committee for the Coincidence of Opposites and other things. And so what we're going to do now is go right to Diane, uh, who has been thinking about these things. She, people know her, and 
know why she would be on, and she has a very particular set of reflections she'd like to uh, give us. We're coming up on the Martin Luther King weekend. The Saturday will be his actual birthday, and then Monday will be the official holiday. Uh, so I'd ask everybody to listen closely. Diane? Yes, great. Thanks, Dennis. So just, um, I think I'll start again with this nuclear war danger, which is very real, and partly what makes it the more dangerous is people's um, lack of knowledge about what is going on and the serious nature of it, and I would say not least of which the history of what happened with both Russia and China in World War II and wars related to World War II, in the case of China, the um, occupation by the Japanese, uh, et cetera. Uh, There are certain things when they say red lines, (laughs) this is not like Obama's red line about Syria or something. These are things that they know the people of their nations would find intolerable. And if you push them, they will be forced to respond asymmetrically, as they say. Um, And that includes the coup in Ukraine, which was orchestrated by the Obama administration in the winter of 2013 going into 2014, where Victoria Nuland, who is back again with the State Department under Biden, um, people may remember, if you're old enough, um, her phone call where she was overheard saying, F the EU, talking to her friend then ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt, about who we were going to install in the Ukrainian government. And uh, to say that they are sympathetic to Nazism would be an understatement. If people know who Stepan Bandera was, he was the collaborator of Hitler in Ukraine. He brutally murdered tens of thousands of Jews, of Poles, Russian speakers, uh, you now have torchlit marches on his birthday and other days of tens of thousands of people in Ukraine with giant photographs of the sky. So imagine if Germany were to hold torchlit marches with pictures of Adolf Hitler, the world would be quite aghast. But uh, that is the regime that's been brought in in Ukraine And what people also may not consider is the Soviet Union lost 27 million lives in World War II uh, through a very brutal war. The German Nazis were trying to run a war of annihilation, uh, and people fought with everything, speaking of tooth and nail. Um, And in fact, one out of six Russians died. So for Putin, this is very personal. Uh, because his own older brother starved to death in the siege of Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. His mother was almost carted away. They thought she was dead, and I guess they had teams going through to clear out the corpses, and they figured if she wasn't dead, it was close enough, and his father stopped them from taking her and nursed her back to health, and Putin was born uh, later. So... Um, It's very, very personal if you're going to support people marching around behind photographs of Nazi collaborators wearing swastikas on their sleeve and shelling Russian-speaking people 
in eastern Ukraine, which is what is going on. So Russia has announced on numerous occasions that it is a red line, that they will not tolerate ethnic cleansing of 500,000 people with Russian passports uh, in the east, um, and that they will do something. Also, they have pointed out that every agreement that was given, and now it is known indeed that in February, I believe, of 1989, um, then, yeah, James Baker III, well, the wall came down in 89, so I guess it was maybe 90. Uh, James Baker III promised Gorbachev that NATO would not move one inch to the east, but in fact, uh, NATO has gobbled up country after country. Um, at least 14 additional nations have joined NATO since the Berlin Wall came down, and um, there's been no stopping, and the Warsaw Pact no longer exists. Helga Zeplerusch has been very clear. Senator Richard Black, um, who has spoken at Schiller Institute conferences, has been clear there is no purpose for NATO. There is a need, as Putin has called for, and as Helga proposed, a need for a new security architecture because what we can be worried about is terrorism, drug trafficking, human trafficking, and also we should take certain scientific initiatives to protect the Earth from asteroids and comets and forecast earthquakes and stop pandemics, stop millions of people from starving to death. These are things that our nation should be cooperating on. So this situation is such that there was a summit in Geneva between the deputy uh, foreign ministers or deputy secretaries of state, Wendy Sherman for the U.S. and Ryabkov for Russia, and this did not go well. Uh, the Russians said that Ukraine joining NATO is absolutely not, is not acceptable, must not happen. And Wendy Sherman said, you cannot close the door on expansion of NATO. So that's a fundamental issue, um, making the situation extremely dangerous. Uh, And I would add that at any moment they can begin to provoke things in a similar way with China over the case of Taiwan. Uh, and there's other kinds of saber rattling around Iran, etc. cetera. Um, so the danger is very real, and it really requires a cultural shift. I was reflecting on the question of the military-industrial complex People say, well, the military-industrial complex wants all these wars because they make money. Well, why is it profitable to produce missiles and bombs which only blow themselves and other things up? Why is that profitable? It actually would be more profitable for these same companies to build tens of thousands of miles of high-speed rail, build nuclear power plants, build modern water management systems, build spaceships, build 3D printers, because that kind of thing generates real growth. You don't only get the profit in the initial investment, but what you get is a continuing return because what you have done is to create something that allows human beings to be more productive. So given that, 
thinking through that the military-industrial complex really isn't doing the most lucrative thing because it would be more profitable to actually do things that would generate growth, you realize that maybe there's some lackeys on the low level who have their, you know, get paid and they do it for pay. But at the top, it's an ideological worldview. Uh, Now I'm going to leave that there. You'll hear I have a recording of Mr. LaRouche saying something that we'll go to in a second. Two other matters. Afghanistan. You're about to see as many as 23 million people die of starvation before the eyes of the world, merely because the Biden administration has chosen to keep the $9.5 billion of the Afghan Central Bank locked primarily in the New York Federal Reserve. And no money can even go in if you have a relief or a charity from the United States. You can only send $200 at a time. The winter there has become very, very brutal. And you already have 3 million children under the age of five at risk of immediate death by starvation. I have seen videos of families who have sold everything just to try to get food who are literally now selling their children. So this is a crime against humanity, which will be on each of us as Americans if we do not do something to reverse this. And you have to ask yourself why people are not more passionate and you may be also able to get an insight when people muse, they often wonder, how did Hitler get away with what he did? How come no one stopped Hitler? How did that happen? Well, you're seeing it right now with the situation in Afghanistan. And I would say exactly related to that, I have one example, there are many. It's what just happened with this hideous fire in the Bronx. You had a similar one a couple months ago in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, where 17 people died in a huge building because there was a fire on the second floor because the owner of the building was not providing heat or adequate heat. And they were using a space heater. Uh, There have been numerous violations in the building. Complaints were filed. Tickets were opened. Repairs were not made. They had a faulty fire alarm system that went off all the time. So when people heard the fire alarm going off, Until they smelled the smoke, they thought it was another false alarm. And affected by the pandemic, you had understaffing of the fire department. So instead of teams of five running an engine uh, truck, you had four. So they were down by 20%. Um, So now I went to a press conference they had there today, and here it is, the fire was... Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, four days later, no one is paying the hotel where they have moved everybody. They are giving each family one room. So you have beds with four and five people sleeping in them. You have families now completely infected with COVID because they're all in one room. And they no one has paid the hotel. So the hotels are saying, we're going to have to throw you out. And they're sending people either to homeless shelters 
or telling them to move back into a building which is not inhabitable because it is absolutely filled with smoke and soot and broken windows. And But some people are in it now. And at the press conference, a woman who was speaking asked everyone who was residents of the building to answer her. She said, do you have heat? And they all yelled, no. So how can this be going on in the United States? And anyone who thinks that other people all over the world are not aware that this is how the United States treats its own citizens, then they are not surprised that we would let millions of people die of starvation in Afghanistan. So that's what we have to change. And and it is a profound cultural and moral change that has to occur. And that's why I always appreciate um, the celebration of the birth of Martin Luther King because he really embodied a Christian spirit. And so what I wanted to do and want to do now is ask Charles to play for you just excerpts. This was a 37-minute speech by Lyndon LaRouche given January 19, 2004 in Talladega, Alabama, where he was introduced by civil rights movement leader Amelia Boynton Robinson for people who saw Selma. Uh, this is the woman who was who hosted Martin Luther King in Selma and herself was beaten and left for dead on the bridge on uh, Bloody Sunday, and she was a great friend of Lyndon and Helga Zepp LaRouche. Um, uh, but at any rate, so we're going to only take about six minutes of his speech and it ends in kind of abruptly, which is just as well because you should go and listen to it yourself. So if we could have that, Charles. We have two problems, I think, which should be the basis for reflecting on Martin's life today. One, we have a national crisis. Now, I'm not going to mince words and I'm not going to do any political hacking, but the facts have to be told. This economy is collapsing. The situation, relatively speaking, in terms of basic economic infrastructure of the United States today is worse than in 1933 when Roosevelt came into the White House in March. That is, you look around you, infrastructure, energy, so forth, the conditions of life of our people around the world, And don't look in the big cities where they put on a facade and say things are fine. Look in the the communities. For example, Detroit now has half the population it used to have. An industrial city is gone. Look around Birmingham. You see how the same thing is reported. It was never rich, but their sense of loss, of loss, of loss of this that. That's the situation in the United States. We are in trouble. And look at the world. The world faces a great crisis. And the United States faces a great crisis in dealing with the world. The largest concentrations of population of the world are China, for example, 1.3 billion or more. India, over 1 billion. Then you have Pakistan, Bangladesh, and the countries of Southeast Asia. This is the greatest concentration of population on this planet. It's an emerging part of the world. The question is, what's the relationship of the United States to these people of Asia 
who represent, in by and large, different cultural backgrounds than those of us in the United States or in Western Europe. How are we going to find peace in a troubled world? How are we going to find reconciliation in a troubled world with, with countries which have turned against us because of the war policies of Cheney and some others? So we, face, we do not face a new problem today, in, the, in one sense. We face the same problem, in principle, that Barton faced, and faced successfully. And I would propose that in the lesson of Martin Luther King and his life, there is something we can learn today which brings him back to life as if he was standing here alive today. There's something special about his life, his development, which should be captured today by us, not only in addressing the problems of our nation, which are becoming terrible, but the problems of our relationship with the world as a whole. How are we going to deal with these cultures that are different than our own, with an Asian culture, with Muslim cultures around the world, one over a billion Muslims around the world, with the culture of China, which is different than ours, the culture of Southeast Asia, which is different than ours, the cultural background. They're all human. They all have the same ultimate requirements, the same needs. But they're different cultures. They think differently. They respond to different predicates than we respond to. But we must have peaceful cooperation with these people to solve a world problem. Then you start thinking about someone like Martin. And I want to indicate in the context I just stated what the significance of Martin is today. We had no replacement for Martin. Lesson number one. Martin was a unique personality. He was not a talented person who happened to stumble into leadership and could be easily replaced by other leaders who would learn the job and take over afterward. We had no replacement. No one in the position to replace him. Many wished to be, they didn't have it. So this is the problem. We have a population, we have a world in which there's a shortage of people who actually understand fully the meaning of the difference between man and beast. That man is a creature, as defined by Genesis 1, is made in the likeness of the creator of the universe. This is us. We are, because we transmit these ideas, because we transmit this work as no animal can, we love one another. We love the people who come before us. We love those who are coming after us. We care for them in a very selfish way because in our spending our talent of life, our sense of beauty depends upon what was coming out of our life in future generations. We love children for that reason. They're our children. We love grandchildren even more than children sometimes. Because that, that's, you know, that's, oh, our children were able to produce these children. That's great. I mean, you love them specially, and, and particularly if a person become a grandparent. They love these grandchildren especially for that reason. So this kind of loving is, is lacking generally in the population, in leaders. Martin obviously had that. Martin was one of the rare people in his time who had a deep sense of what it is to be a human being who had a deep sense of the lesson 
of the passion and crucifixion of Christ and was able to bring to politics, which he didn't go in to get in as politics as such. He was a, a natural leader. The natural leader is one who comes not from the political process as such, but from the people. Martin never achieved political office. Yet he was probably as important a figure of the United States as, as any modern president. He achieved that. His authority as a leader came from the people. He fought against the people and with the people to free them. So that's uh, Lyndon LaRouche's reflections on Martin Luther King from a Martin Luther King uh, birthday lunch in 2004. And now what I just wanted to share with you, it's strikingly appropriate for today, is a sermon that Martin Luther King gave in February of 1962, the year of the Cuban Missiles Crisis, but early in the year. Uh, and I think you'll hear why. And this particular sermon is called A Knock at Midnight. And it is based on the scripture from Luke uh, 11, 5, and 6. He, uh, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Unquote. Question mark. <clears throat> so King says, It is midnight within the social order. On the international horizon, nations are engaged in a colossal and bitter contest for supremacy. Two world wars have been fought within a generation and the clouds of another war are dangerously low. Man now has atomic and nuclear weapons that could, within seconds, completely destroy the major cities of the world. Yet the arms race continues, and nuclear tests still explode in the atmosphere with the grim prospect that the very air we breathe will be poisoned by radioactive fallout. Will these circumstances and weapons bring the annihilation of the human race? When confronted by midnight in the social order, we have in the past turned to science for help, and little wonder, on so many occasions, science has saved us. And he lists a few things, scientific and medical breakthroughs. But he says, science cannot now rescue us, for even the scientist is lost in the terrible midnight of our age. This midnight in man's external collective life is paralleled by midnight in his internal individual life. It is midnight within the psychological order. Everywhere, paralyzing fears harrow people by day and haunt them by night. Deep clouds of anxiety and depression are suspended in our mental skies. More people are emotionally disturbed today than at any other time of human history. The psychopathic wards of our hospitals are crowded 
and the most popular psychologists today are the psychoanalysts. It is also midnight within the moral order. At midnight, colors lose their distinctiveness and become a sullen shade of gray. Moral principles have lost their distinctiveness. For modern man, absolute right and absolute wrong are a matter of what the majority is doing. Right and wrong are relative to likes and dislikes and the customs of a particular community. Midnight is the hour when men desperately seek to obey the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not get caught. According to the ethic of midnight, the cardinal sin is to be caught and the cardinal virtue is to, be, is to get by. It is all right to lie, but one must lie with real finesse. It is all right to steal if one is so dignified that, if caught, the charge becomes embezzlement, not robbery. And I'm skipping a rather large section of the sermon here um, to get to his conclusion. Midnight is a confusing hour when it is difficult to be faithful. The most inspiring word that the church may speak is that no midnight long remains. The weary traveler by midnight who asks for bread is really seeking the dawn. Our eternal message of hope is that dawn will come. Our slave foreparents realize this. They were never unmindful of the fact of midnight, for always there was the rawhide whip of the overseer and the auction block where families were torn asunder to remind them of its reality. Faith in the dawn arises from the faith that God is good and just. When one believes this, he knows that the contradictions of life are neither final nor ultimate. He can walk through the dark night with the radiant conviction that all things work together for good for those that love God. Even the most starless midnight may herald the dawn of some great fulfillment. At the beginning of the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, we set up a voluntary carpool to get the people to and from their jobs. For 11 long months, our carpool functioned extraordinarily well. Then, Mayor Gale introduced a resolution instructing the city's legal department to file such proceedings as it might deem proper to stop the operation of the carpool or any transportation system growing out of the bus boycott. A hearing was set for Tuesday, November 13, 1956. At our regular weekly mass meeting, scheduled the night before the hearing, I had the responsibility of warning the people that the carpool would probably be enjoined. I knew that they had willingly suffered for nearly 12 months, but could we now ask them to walk back and forth to their jobs? And if not, would we be forced to admit that the protest had failed? For the first time, I almost shrank 
from appearing before them. When the evening came, I mustered sufficient courage to tell them the truth. I tried, however, to conclude on a note of hope. We have moved all these months, I said, in the daring faith that God is with us in our struggle. The many experiences of days gone by have vindicated that faith in a marvelous way. Tonight, we must believe that a way will be made out of no way, unquote. Yet I could feel the cold breeze of pessimism pass over the audience. The night was darker than a thousand midnights. The light of hope was about to fade and the lamp of faith to flicker. A few hours later, before Judge Carter, the city argued that we were operating a private enterprise without a franchise. Our lawyers argued brilliantly that the carpool was a voluntary share-a-ride plan provided without profit as a service by Negro churches. It became obvious that Judge Carter would rule in favor of the city. At noon, during a brief recess, I noticed an unusual commotion in the courtroom. Mayor Gale was called to the back room. Several reporters moved excitedly in and out of the room. Momentarily, a reporter came to the table where, as chief defendant, I sat with the lawyers. Here's the decision you've been waiting for, he said. Read this release. In anxiety and hope, I read these words. The United States Supreme Court today unanimously ruled bus segregation unconstitutional in Montgomery, Alabama. My heart throbbed with an inexpressible joy. The darkest hour of our struggle had become the first hour of victory. Someone shouted from the back of the courtroom, God Almighty has spoken from Washington. The dawn will come. Disappointment, sorrow, and despair are born at midnight, but morning follows. Weeping may endure for a night, says the psalmist, but joy cometh in the morning. This faith adjourns the assemblies of hopelessness and brings new light into the dark chambers of pessimism. That's the sermon, and I think everybody listening... um, can hear how very applicable that is for what we are currently experiencing and also the point of not knowing when there is going to be a break, but not by doing nothing. People had been struggling and walking and organizing for nearly a year when this word came down from the Supreme Court, and it certainly was not guaranteed that they knew that they weren't going to stop until they succeeded. So that's what I have. Okay, we'll open the queue. And as people are thinking about either reflections, questions, comments, uh, let me just indicate something about this coming Monday. There's an emergency seminar that we are holding, uh, which is called Injustice Anywhere is a Threat to Justice Everywhere. International seminar to stop the murder of Afghanistan. 
uh, January 17th, Martin Luther King Day. And it says, as the year 2022 opens, let us all over the world turn our thoughts not only to Martin Luther King, but to his mission, the establishment of a beloved community of all mankind. We must come to realize that the greatest disease-threatening humanity is depraved indifference, shown most spectacularly in the deliberate starvation right now of millions in Afghanistan, quote, in the name of human rights. Moreover, if you let such an injustice happen to others, the same injustice will sooner or later happen to you. Seventeen people just died in a horrific fire in the Bronx. There were more than two dozen previously reported violations at that building. Among the dead were eight children. But hundreds of thousands of children are about to starve to death in Afghanistan. The causes of the death of innocent children in Afghanistan and in the Bronx, the cause is the same. The cause is a depraved indifference as to whether or not they either would or should survive. Once, Nations aspire to prosperity for all citizens. It was called the general welfare of ourselves and our posterity. Now, because we refuse to stop Wall Street and the city of London's futile attempt to continue their bankrupt system, mass deaths beckon daily throughout the transatlantic world. We are told that, regrettably, mass death will be normal. It will be endemic in the form of pandemics or war, or extreme events. If that be so, there must be a direct, that must be a direct result of our depraved indifference because we could have treated the sickest, the hungriest, the most vulnerable in the world first, but instead chose not to do so and still continue to choose, do not, choose not to do so. And then it describes Operation Ibn Sina, uh, the plan designed by the Schiller Institute to resolve the injustice underway in Afghanistan and by that means create a united worldwide effort to roll back the glaring injustices in healthcare and other areas and talks about releasing the money, the $9.5 billion, uh, $9 billion in funds, which is only the beginning. Um, it talks about why people have the power to implement this and that will happen on uh, Monday. Uh, time for that is going to be 11 a.m. Uh, and we're doing it at 11 a.m. in order that we could have um, uh, Europe on. That's six hours ahead of us, 5 p.m. there. Uh, and then countries in Central Europe, also South Africa, which is like an hour, 6 p.m. It'll be that time. Also Moscow. Uh, and then, of course, it'll be 8 o'clock in the morning on the west coast of the United States. So uh, everybody can basically, including around the world, uh, participate. So it'll be at 11 a.m. And uh, it's not intended to be an absolute like, full-blown conference because, you know, we don't have, really have time to do that but, but uh, to organize that. But it is a seminar on that topic. So that's, uh, that's what we'll be doing. Uh, at that time, uh, we're still working some things out on Saturday, but Mike Billington will join me on Saturday, and we are expecting another special guest that has to confirm for that day. We'll let that be known, and we'll send out an email about that tomorrow once we know. 